The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. On the day King Azarus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who are all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Azarus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, and the edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Azarus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, Eleven, or saying that king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province, that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Azarus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews 
were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great gold, golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Good morning again. We'll continue our study of Esther. And it's just been read for us. We're in Esther 8, where the good news that we've been hoping for from this book finally comes to fruition. Esther has gone and made her plea before the king, and the king has taken the life of Haman to protect Esther and Mordecai. And then Esther and Mordecai, in turn, come and plead for the rest of Israel. One of the things you'll note about this part of the story is that you see them not give up, trusting that good will overcome, trusting that God will provide for His people. So this morning I ask you, what are the areas in your life which you are tempted to give up? Where have you said there's no way God can heal this marriage? No way God can bring me through this sin. No way God can sustain me during this struggle, during this hard time. And you're tempted to give up. Well, I hope you'll be encouraged as we look at this passage together, which teaches us to persevere. Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would be at work powerfully through these moments that we have together. Often we are weary with our suffering. We are tempted to give up, give up on ourselves, give up on you. And I ask God that you would plainly and powerfully encourage us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In S.E. Hinton's famous book, The Outsiders, which was also turned into a film, it launched many American actors' careers. There's a scene where Cherry and Ponyboy, who are on different sides of the track, they're having a conversation about their two respective groups. Cherry's part of the Soches, the cool kids, the rich kids group. And Pony Boy is part of the greasers, the down and outs, the outsiders, if you will. And they're having a conversation in which they're talking about whose life is more difficult and the struggles that each one goes through. At one point, Pony Boy is kind of complaining as if Cherry's life must be perfect. And Cherry looks at Pony Boy and says this You think the Socias have it made? The rich kids 
the South Side Soches. Well, I'll tell you something, pony boy, and it might come as a surprise, but things are rough all over. Things are rough all over. And Cherry is explaining to Pony that at least, though he thinks that life is so hard for them and so easy for the Soches, that it's actually difficult no matter who you are, no matter where you are. It's a picture that this text gives to us that things are rough all over. Aaron and I say that phrase, that quote to each other often. Normally it's in the context of us having gone out to dinner with someone or spent some time with somebody from the outside thinking their life is perfect or easier than ours and then we learn a little bit about their story, a little bit about something that they're battling with and we realize that they're struggling. That while on the outside things may look like they all fit together on the inside, it's hard. Things are rough all over, pony boy. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe you stare through Instagram or Facebook or from work, and you stare at other lives and think, if I could just have that life, things wouldn't be so rough. And this passage reminds us that things are rough all over, and yet that God has called us and equipped us to persevere, to not give up. We all struggle to persevere during hard times, but because of what God has done, we must never give up. First of all, look with me in verses one and two at the reward of her perseverance. The reward of Esther and Mordecai, their plotting and their scheming and their planning and their fasting and their praying. And let's look at the reward that God provides for them in verses one and two. It says, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You see, two different things have just taken place. First of all, the king takes the possessions from Haman's family and gives it to Esther's family. And then he takes the power that was Haman's because of the king's signet ring, and he puts it on Mordecai, and there is this great reward for faithfulness. Esther and Mordecai, against all odds, have moved in such a way to encourage the king to put to death Haman, this evil person who is fighting to destroy all of Israel. And their faithfulness is rewarded. They have done what is difficult. They have persevered through hard circumstances and there is reward in persevering. Now if we connect that to us as Christians, wherever you're struggling in your life, when you persevere, you're not necessarily going to get more possessions, at least now. You're not necessarily going to get more power just because you persevere. That was contextual. But the point is, is that we too will be rewarded for persevering, just as Esther and Mordecai were. We too endure hardship. Listen to this from Acts 14, 21 and 22. 
It says this, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Listen to this. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, quote, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, I know that you're going through hardships. I don't know what they all are specifically. What you have been called to persevere in in your particular story, but it's through those trials, through those hardships, as it says, that we enter into the kingdom of God, that we persevere. Those are the things that cause us to enter into the kingdom of God as we go through these difficulties. So the message for us to see Esther and Mordecai rewarded, the message for us is to don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up on your marriage yet, even though you're weary. Don't give up fighting that sin that keeps nipping at your heels. Don't give up. Don't give up in believing that God is for you and that he has plans to bring you hope and a future. Don't give up on that. We are so tempted to give up hope of God and to put our hope in ourselves. And God will move even in our difficulties. First Peter says this, dear friends, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Do you hear Peter? He says, don't be surprised. That's our problem, is that we feel like we have come to faith, we understand the gospel, And then we are surprised when we struggle. We are surprised when we suffer as if to think God took away my sin and now all of my problems should be gone too. Peter says, don't be surprised. It's through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. He says, it's not something strange happening to you. This is the family motto. The family motto. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The world hated you, hated me, excuse me, it's going to hate you too. Friends, we will suffer. And I know you feel that even right now, even this week. Don't be surprised. But here's the good news, even though you suffer, you will be rewarded. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Overjoyed. Now there's two ways that we experience reward in this life and it's not always clear. The first way is God sometimes meets us in our prayers and in our struggles and provides for us in a way that we've either prayed for or would have prayed for if we knew better. And he meets us, and there are times even now in life where we look up and think, God, you met me. You answered my prayers. You rewarded me for continuing to follow you. And that's encouraging. 
We need to share those moments with each other. But there are also those times and those stories and those lives, which is many of us, which don't feel like we've gotten the reward. Don't feel like whatever has been taken away, I haven't had enough given to me to replace it. My favorite hymn says, in his, out of his own fullness, he will repay all he takes away. If you feel like you can't persevere because you're not sure the reward is coming, remember that great day is still coming. Fix your eyes on heaven. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen or ear has heard, what no, no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Whatever it is you have lost, whatever following Jesus has cost you, it will have all been worth it a million times over for those who love God. God is saying you can't even believe it. You can't even imagine it. You can't whisper about it. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so restorative, so redemptive that you can't even hear about it yet. Does that lift your chin? Don't give up. Don't give up because there is more yet to come. Aaron and I went on a date on Tuesday and she had been wanting to go to the Whistle Stop, which is this awesome restaurant in Ottawa, and they have all kinds of different desserts. And it sits right near train tracks and you kind of overlook this beautiful area. While we were sitting there eating our lunch, this young couple came in with their daughter in their arms and they came in with a photographer and they sat down at a table near us and as we were peeking over to figure out what was going on, it occurred to us that this girl's had been, adoption had been finalized on this day. The mom had on a, a shirt that says, adoption is the gospel. And they had come and brought their girl, now finally and fully and legally, their little girl to this whistle stop. And they brought her over this huge ice cream cone. It's dipped in sprinkles and it has cotton candy in it and candy pieces coming out the top of it and it has a sparkler in the middle of it and they light the sparkler and the photographer's taking pictures and the little girl's reaching for the sparks and smiling and it was this moment of absolute celebration. The whole restaurant was watching. Imagine the long dark nights of that couple waiting on their adoption. Imagine them trying to figure out how they're ever gonna save up enough money, how they're ever gonna get to the end of the bottomless list of paperwork that adoption requires. Imagine the, the sleepless nights that they've been through, all to end up with this little girl in their lap and in their life. They persevered and they received the reward. And ultimately, what this is telling us here in Esther and in the gospel is that as we persevere, we will be rewarded, rewarded with more closeness with Christ, more love for others, and ultimately for all of the bad stuff in our world to be undone. He wants us to believe 
that his providence will reward us in this life or in the life to come. Friends, wherever you're struggling, no effort to persevere will ever go unrewarded. You see this reward for their faithfulness, that they have this position of power finally and that they have these new possessions. But you also see Esther's renewed request. Look with me in verses three through eight. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king had held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. She said, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Esther goes and pleads with the king. Now she's already drawn near to him when she was not invited, risking her life. She's brought him to a banquet. Then she's brought him to another banquet. And she continues to persevere and she pleads with this king. She makes her plea to him practical and personal. She knows exactly what she's asking for. That's that practical side. Here's what you can do to make it right king and she engages him personally did you hear it she engaged their relationship when she was asking listen again if it please the king and if i have found favor in his sight and if i am pleasing in his eyes and then she ends it saying this How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Remember that King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, is the one who is ultimately responsible for this edict going forth, but she doesn't even mention that. She sidesteps it entirely, and she says, because of me, king, will you reconsider this order? Will you write a new edict? Because of our relationship, because of what I mean to you, She pleads for God's people. Now remember, she's going before a king who is wild and unpredictable and has proven himself evil in several circumstances. And yet she goes and makes her plea to him. If we learn anything from Esther, it's how to plea with the king. The difference is is that the king that she pleads to, who knows what will happen? The king that we plead with loves us, given his life for us, sustains us by his spirit and eagerly awaits our prayers in heaven. If this passage teaches us anything, it's to pray. It's to pray. 
to take what we need, the, the things that we're trying to persevere through, the things that we're struggling with, and to pray to God about those things. Jesus says this in Luke 11. And Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. Listen to this. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Listen. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It teaches us to plea, to pray, to pour out our hearts to God about the things we are bearing, struggling with, suffering from, to pray for ourselves, to pray for each other in the church, to pray for those outside of the church, but to pray over and over again as the hymn says, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. Every once in a while, just before I head to bed, Erin will be prepping to teach in the morning and she'll realize she's forgotten something in the car and she'll look at me and playfully say, hey, because you love me, will you run out to the car for me and grab this thing? And she knows that I love her. She knows that no matter how tired I am and now how ready to go to bed I am, that I will stop what I'm doing because of her, because of our relationship, and I will go out there and do this small favor. And what the Bible is teaching us to do is to look at God and say, God, you love me. You gave up your son for me. You've given me your Holy Spirit. You have chased me through all of human history, and you've made a place for me that you're gonna come and bring me to. And because of that, because of our relationship, God, because you love me, will you do this? We say that through the finished work of Christ, because God loves to give good gifts to his children. That's the verse that we talked about earlier in the liturgy. Let us then approach God, God's throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Remember the guy from the, the parable, it's because of his shameless audacity. God wants you to go and advocate, to plea with him, knowing that you are pleading with someone who loves you and wants what is best for you and wants what is best for his world. You see that we're supposed to pray and you see this reversal in the text, this grand reversal, and we've been talking about that a lot as we've studied Esther. A ver reversal is, is something bad, something terrifying, something evil, and somehow, because of the very thing that is bad, and some 
amazing intervention from God, the very thing that looked bad is actually turned for good and the blessing of others. We see the reversal here in verses nine through 14. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Seven, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, to the governors, to the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters, mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that they were all, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people, any province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of writ was written, issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed. So there's this reversal. What was going to be the death of the Jews is now going to lead to the prominence of the Jews. There's a grand reversal. And what's really cool, if you notice, back when we studied in Esther 3.3, sorry, Esther 3.13, I'll just hit the highlights. But listen to what this sounds like. The king's scribe were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. An edict, according to all that Haman had commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors of all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, and to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, and one day, thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. It's almost word for word. The author of Esther is taking the two edicts and laying them out side by side and saying, you see what evil did? You see how God overrules it. You see what evil did? You see how God overrules it. Line by line, you can't miss it if you look at it. Reversal, of of course, points us to the greater reversal and the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Devil, you'd think, would delight in the death of Jesus. That death that the devil introduced into the world through Adam's sin is now going to be foist upon Christ. And instead, that death is the very thing that Christ uses to kill death. The very thing that Christ uses to bring life to all the world. As death entered in one Adam, life enters in the second Adam. It's this grand reversal. How do you participate in the grand reversal? What does the grand reversal look like now, now that we see that the empty tomb and the cross work backward to undo all of the evil of mankind and work forward to point us to a perfect city? How can you participate? Here's what it means is, just like death was something sad and to be grieved, and yet through it God brought good things, it's to take the things that you're most embarrassed about, the things that have been your Achilles heel, the things that have caused you the most difficulty, and maybe even if you dare the most shame, and to set it on the center of the table and say, God, how can you use this? 
I'm taking this out of the shadows and I'm sitting on the table and I'm saying, how can you use this? This thing that looks so defeating, so bad, so ugly, and how can you use it to bring life to others? And that's exactly what he'll do. Time and time again, as you hear the testimonies of people who are drug addicted or who were alcohol addicted and they keep saying the same thing over and over again is that once they hit rock bottom, they realize they couldn't find any help And ultimately, they found help in AA, and now they go to meetings, and ultimately, what do they end up doing? They sponsor other people who are younger in the program than they do. It was the the shame of their life, and now God is using it to bring life to others. How beautiful is that? What is that thing that you need to set on the table? Take your loss out of the shadows, out of the dark, and put it right in the center of the table and say, God, use this. And lastly, the reversal. Sorry, excuse me, lastly, the rejoicing. You see that there's a reward if we persevere in faithfulness. And you see that there's a reversal that God can make all things new. But I want you to see this rejoicing that takes place. Look in verses 15 and seven, 15 through 17 with me. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. There's this rejoicing that takes place. First, you see it in his clothes. It's not often in these books that focused on the clothes. But do you remember what it was like for him at the beginning? Listen, Esther 4 says this, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate because no one in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Listen to how he's dressed now. in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The author of Esther wants us to see Mordecai has changed clothes. The circumstances that were going to crush him ultimately lead him to celebration. Look how he's dressed now. There's rejoicing. In Isaiah 61.10, it says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a, bru- a bride adorns herself with jewels. We have new clothes in Christ. Rather than our good works, which are filthy garments, 
all of our sin, which are shameful rags. We have been given the robes and the righteousness of Christ, not that we earned, but that he gave to us. We, too, are now transformed in what we wear. And the edict brought so much joy. Do you see the celebration? Do you see the joy? It it explodes from the community. The gladness, it says it over and over and again, and the joy. They're having fun. In fact, it even says this, that the people around them started to become Jews because they were afraid of the Jews. Now in that context, the Jews then were allowed to kill anyone that tried to kill them, and so people are like, oh, I'm with them. But regardless of of the motives, you see that the people were surrounded with so much joy, so much power at that point, that people were jumping into the ship. What if we were like that as Christians? Instead of the people that no one wants to be around, instead of the people who are Debbie Downers, the people who are legalistic, the people who are self-righteous, the people who say one thing and do another. What if Christians were so much fun? What if they were enjoying their salvation and celebrating God's grace in their lives so much that it was just magnetic to be around? That's the picture. One commentator said this, you can measure your embrace of the promise of future glory by the practice of present joy. You can measure your embrace of the promise of future glory by the practice of present joy. What he's saying is, if you believe that you will wear the robes of righteousness, that you are welcome at the wedding feast of the Lamb, that you will worship with every tribe, tongue, and nation, that you will be called a son and a daughter, a prince and a princess, and that you will co-heir, co-reign with Christ over the new heavens and the new earth forever. Wouldn't your life be categorized by joy? Wouldn't this all be a prelude to a greater story? And we're called to look up and remember that we're part of that great story. We're supposed to be celebrating the grace given to us in Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit, so much that the fish are jumping in the boat. I want to be a part of that. We'll close here. Ted Strawbridge, one of the former pastors who's passed away. When we were considering planting the church, he said this to me. What if a church plant and the core group of people who are planting it decided that they were going to have so much fun together? and the way that they loved and lived and celebrated, they were gonna have so much fun that people couldn't help but want to be around it. That's the infectious nature of the gospel, is that when you have been transformed, when you've been restored, and you're basking in it, and you're loving on others, and you're encouraging others, that other people will want to jump in the boat. You can measure your embrace of the promise of future glory by the practice of present joy. What does it look like, your practice of present joy? Let's pray. Jesus, we admit that sometimes the rewards feel so far away they're hard to 
visualize. But you say that they're coming for us. You say that we can plead with you and pray because you're a good father who loves to give good gifts to your children. Father, we see that you're making reversals happen all over the world. That the weak overcome the strong. That those who are left out and neglected and forgotten, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit. And Father, we also see the celebration that comes with our rescue of Christ. Help us to be a church that is so full of joy, so full of celebration, so in awe of who God has done, what God has done, and who God is, that we cannot help but to be fun to be around for the watching world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.